I love what Noah was talking about um, in Metta. Because what I didn't hear him say was, when you're perfect, then you can love yourself, and you can forgive yourself. I didn't hear him say, when your abs are tight, <laughs> you can love yourself and have you know, unconditional care for yourself. I didn't hear him say, when your anxiety or fear are gone, then you're allowed to be free. I didn't hear him say, when your critical mind stops judging and having opinions, that you're allowed liberation. But what I did hear him say was how he included all of those things, how he included our pain, how he included our suffering, how he included the hard parts, which in actuality are our human parts. You know, sometimes I feel like we're waiting for our humanity to go away before we can actually love ourselves, before we can be kind to ourselves. And I know for myself, unfortunately, I have a somewhat critical mind, mostly of myself, but also of others, and somehow I want them to be perfect too so that I can love them. And that's quite a, it's quite a quandary. It causes a lot of separation and definitely doesn't cause connection when we have this thinking that over there is when I'm going to be better. Over there is when I can love myself and when I can love other people. And so it's sort of as simple as breaking it down to what causes more suffering and what causes the end of suffering. And I think from the teachings, it's, it's always been laid out like that. If we look at the Four Noble Truths, it's laid out as here is suffering, here is the cause to suffering, here is what you can do to stop that suffering. And it's very simply laid out. And I think if we look at any of our practices, we can look at that equation over and over. Here is X. This is the cause of X. This is how we get rid of X. And so what I want to talk about tonight is um, a particular brand of suffering, because we all have our own, right? We all have our own particular flavor based on our families and our relationships and where we've come from and our schools and our teachers and our identities and the friends we hang out with. And because of all this accumulation, sometimes when I, I feel like when I'm looking at somebody, I'm looking at the thousands of people that are standing behind them, that helped create them, that helped form them. And then here we are in this one little package and we're carrying all this stuff around with us. And we wonder why we run into difficulties, why it's hard to have this awakened heart that we're working on here on this retreat. Why we've had a few people ask, like, how do I do that? How do I get there? I'm not there yet. So I want to explain one of the things that um, actually hinder our ability to be able to do that. 
It's actually a list of things. Um, and I was noticing today, you know, usually when I'm, when I'm writing a talk or thinking about a talk, I really try to, uh, to live within the, um, the teaching that I'm about to talk about. And what I'm about to talk about, I'm not trying to keep it a mystery. <laughs> Just waiting a little bit. Um, is the hindrances. I'm going to talk about the hindrances. I'm going to talk about that which hinders our ability to concentrate, that which hinders our ability to have a stable, clear mind, and that what ultimately hinders our ability to allow our hearts to be vulnerable and kind. And I was noticing today that you know, I, I like to think that there's just one particular hindrance, you know, that, that works throughout my day. But I was noticing how many times I felt things from sadness to anxiety to loneliness. You know, also I don't want to forget the joys that I've experienced today, the excitement and the energy. And even though we're in silence and not really looking at each other or talking to each other, the thrill that you're all here and that we're all together. But I think what we tend to notice are the hard parts. And I don't know about you guys today. I'm hoping that you've experienced some joy and some good times too. But I think that sometimes the the day one can be particularly challenging. I was kind of feeling today like this wind was really indicative of um, how our emotions can be, you know, how they're kind of out of our control, how if our minds aren't trained and stable, we can be tossed around like these trees were today, like the leaves were today. And so it was sort of like this, we had this sort of outside example of what was possibly going on here inside. Again, maybe not for all of you. I hate to throw out these generalizations because maybe some people have had some really beautifully pleasant days, and I, I hope so. But if we're unaware of these ever-changing mind states, they can actually wreak havoc. They can wreak havoc on our heart and on our stability. Sometimes they're likened to um, black holes out in the middle of a galaxy. When we have these particularly strong hindrances or particularly strong feelings, you know how black holes act. They suck in everything that's around them. Everything that is anywhere near them actually disappears into them. And sometimes when we have really strong addictions or really strong habitual patterns, that's what it feels like. We feel like we no longer exist. Like we've been completely, all of our, all of our energy, everything that we're about has been sucked in and has been evaporated into this black hole. And then there's the more lightweight hindrances, which just keep us feeling a little uneasy, maybe a little unsure, a little off balance in a day. So 
So I want to go through the hindrances, and maybe maybe you can relate to some of them that I'm bringing up, and maybe not. Um, but my guess is probably. <laughs> um, so the first one is desire. And this is really the I want mind. It's usually the I want mind and it's the I want it now mind. Um, It's usually when, for me, I find myself when I'm sitting that a lot of fantasies take place. I actually had a really weird one today and I don't even know if it was a a good desirous example, but I was sitting here earlier in the after, after lunch period and I was really kind of sleepy and dozing off and did you guys have streakers in England? Like, was that a phase here? Like, in the 70s or 80s, we had streakers in the States a lot. Do you know what that is? Yeah. <laughs> so I was sitting here, and I actually was having this kind of fun. It was like you, kind of like, it made me laugh. It was a kind of fun fantasy that somebody actually, like, would be daring enough to streak down the center of the hall while we were all meditating and run around here and then he kind of waggled his weenie in front of us and then ran back out. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was obviously very entertained by that and, and I think I needed it to sort of bring me out of my, <laughs> my sloth and torpor. But I thought it was really funny. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, with this, this mind of desire can be, it can show up in many ways. It can show up in the, whatever is happening here isn't good enough, and we're going to sit around and fantasize about the, the latte that this retreat center should definitely serve. We need a barista here for sure, you know. Or we can fantasize about the down pillows and our kitty cats at home and missing them. Or we can have the desire around... Uh, you know, the typical desires such as lust that can often pop up. I was once on a retreat where, um, out in Joshua Tree, it was a spirit rock retreat, and I think I spent the first three days living in a pornographic film. And I just couldn't, I mean, every time I closed my eyes, I was just, I hope this isn't too rude for this crew, but every time I closed my eyes, all I could see were pretty quadruple X-rated sex scenes in my head. And that was it. And And it got to the point, actually, where I was a little afraid to close my eyes anymore. And one of the things that I found was really interesting, well, not only did I think they were kind of fun and entertaining at the time, because clearly I was bored, but I also wanted to, I couldn't wait to get home and tell my boyfriend, you know, and how he was going to get so excited about these new ideas I had, and, (laughs) you know, that it was just going to be such a great relationship from now on. And, well, (laughs) needless to say, I didn't go back and tell him because fortunately before the retreat was over, I gained a little bit of wisdom. And one of the things I noticed was, was when desire is really strong, we tend to not be very wise. We get very single focused on that one thing that we're craving, that we're wanting, that we know is going to make us happy, that we know is going to be the answer to everything that's wrong right now. 
Has anybody had that? Do we know that one? There was a, an experiment in the 1950s um, on some poor little lab rats. Um, and some scientists were testing where the pleasure center was. And so they put electrodes in the brains of these rats. And there was a little corner. It was called the Skinner box. And there was a little corner in this box. And every time the rat went and pressed this button, the electrodes would light up and the rat would feel pleasure. And so they were watching these rats and they found that the rat would go over to the box, would feel good, press the button, press the button, press the button. They counted that the rats did that 7,000 times an hour. They wanted to feel that rush of pleasure. And ultimately what happened was the rats forewent, foregone, for goad for something, passed up on food and water to press this button. That's all they cared about. They were completely obsessed. And the rats ultimately died. But the experiment, obviously, as atrocious as it is, was to show how we will forgo pleasure over everything how our desires can actually really run us into the ground to the point of, you know, we sometimes forego responsibilities. And anyone that's, had, anyone that's had serious addictions knows that, you know, they'll take you to your very end. If you're lucky, you'll make it. So desire, one of the hindrances. But to bring it back to the retreat, those are kind of grand or out-of-retreat stories, but to bring it back to the retreat... Just sitting here in your practice noticing the things you might be thinking about that you think would be better than being here. Might be better than a feeling that you don't want to have or experience. And one of the things that I don't want to forget about or ever forgo um, is that desire isn't bad. I don't want to leave that subject thinking and talking about desire as being a bad thing because actually in the practice, desire can also be a very wholesome, helpful energy to drive us towards A, wanting to be here, a desire for freedom, for liberation, for emancipation, a desire to continue on the path. And truly, too, I mean, to enjoy pleasure in and of itself is not, a, is not a bad thing. It's just where the pleasure can drive us and take us is what we need to be really mindful of. Enjoy the sky. Enjoy good food. Enjoy your loved ones. Enjoy a touch. Enjoy the scent of a flower. Enjoy good music. Whatever it is you like, dancing, all good, all fine. But watch when it takes you away and out of our mindfulness, our state of awareness, into clinging and craving. So the next, oh, (laughs) there was a funny moment. When Noah and I were on the plane, there was a crying kid. 
and then I'll move on to the next thing. There was a crying baby. And it was, and it was so funny because the baby was crying, 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 crying. And suddenly we see about three or four stewardesses rushing towards us. Where is the candy? Where is the chocolates? Where is the chocolates? You know, and they found the chocolates and they handed the chocolate to the kid and the kid stopped crying instantly. And, and it's, you know, in that way that uh, when we want something, and it's usually object-based, when we want a thing and we think that thing is going to make us happy, you know, it was kind of like for this kid, this, this quick fix actually made him happy. But ultimately, we know now as adults that those quick fixes aren't often the long-term joy that we're looking for. Sometimes, actually, the ability to be able to forego that quick fix. Sometimes for me, when I'm having a craving for something like a big bowl of ice cream, sometimes when I don't do it, is actually a deeper sense of satisfaction than when I do do it. Sometimes when I do it, it's good. Sometimes not so good. <laughs> okay, so now I want to move on to aversion, um, which is also sometimes called ill will or just to, or just to turn away from also. And I, and I think, you know, particularly on this retreat, it's been really interesting because the weather seems to keep coming up, like the weather and how cold it is and the weather. And I think it would be really interesting, and I'm going to give you guys this assignment um, for a whole day, for 24 hours. See if in your mind you cannot grumble about the weather <laughs> for 24 hours. Okay? Assignment. See what happens. Notice when you start to. And just check it out. And just like think of me. <laughs> I'm in your brain now. The, when you see what it's like, just not to grumble about the weather. These are these kind of aversions that we're going to have maybe on the retreat. And I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of you. I think you're all perfect. But maybe you have a neighbor who breathes heavy or who wriggles a little bit too much or maybe your roommate snores or has smelly feet or I don't know takes too much closet space you know these these ways that um, we find to sort of be able to leave ourselves and blame somebody else maybe for our discomfort these ways that um really actually block the ability to have compassion. I have a mom who I um, had a somewhat troubled childhood with, to put it lightly. Um, And she was in the hospital not too long ago, and she was going to go in for surgery, and the nurse told her that she wasn't going to be able to go in for the surgery because her blood pressure was too high. And I was sitting there with her, And I knew very well that if I held her hand and if I comforted her, that I could get her blood pressure to go down. And I'm not saying that I have, you know, magic hands. I'm just saying that that kind of comfort will often actually help somebody's blood pressure go down. And there was something in me. There was this old wound. There was this old 
aversion that I had to wanting to reach out to her because as a child, she didn't reach out to me, right? So I was having this real moment of, well, she didn't do this for me, so why should I do this for her? And I felt, and I, and I was very cognizant of it. I was very aware of it. And it took, it, it took everything in me. There was almost this brick wall between myself and her. But it took everything in me, and I finally held her hand, and I stroked her head a little bit. And literally within five minutes, the nurse told her that she, would be, she was okay and would be ready for surgery. But I was really noticing in myself the, how profound my aversion was towards her to the point where I couldn't have compassion for her. I couldn't have love for her because I was so blocked by my old pattern around her. And it was a big, it was a really big moment for me. And I, our relationship has changed since, but it was just a, one of those big examples that's always stood out for me. And I think it's really interesting that when we plant an aversive thought, when a thought suddenly pops into our head that runs on the negative side, and we sort of let it run, you know, we let the movie run about this negativity or this aversion, how suddenly we become that aversive person. That thought planted sort of propagates more aversive thoughts. That thought planted propagates more negativity. Again, a story about me. I was having a thought about my partner that I'm with now, and I didn't like the thought very much. And I kept thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it and letting it brew. And by, you know, within five minutes, I hated him and wanted to break up with him. And then I, and then I went back to the origin, right, of this one little thought that actually wasn't a big deal. The one little place that the thought was born. And in seeing it, I was allowed to release it. And my suffering ceased. And I was thinking about how, um, and I'm not going to get into it, but there's something called dependent origination in, our, on the, in this practice, on our path. And how this moment of contact with a thought created this feeling in me that created a, a craving and a clinging and a desire to change, a desire for something to be different. And I went on this whole ride of suffering And we have this moment of choice right there, right at that point of contact, right when the thought gets delivered into our brain. We have this choice point of do I follow that negative thought process or do I maybe stop it and give myself a moment of freedom? And I know it's a really tiny example but, but notice how when you let a thought keep running and how you 
start to tell the old story, the old habitual story that you've always been telling yourself, the one that you know so well. We're so committed to our suffering. It's like, when have we suffered enough? When are we going to ask ourselves that question? When have I suffered enough? Where that old way of being doesn't really need to run the show anymore. Just because that's what I know how to do. And then just again to look at the healthy side of aversion like I did with desire... The healthy side of aversion would be discernment. You know, it would be the ability to know really when it is enough, really when it is time to turn away, when something, a situation, a person isn't serving you anymore. It's also a valuable skill to have, but we need the wisdom to be able to see that. So the next thing um, I want to talk about is sloth and torpor, neither of which words are used in the, in the U.S. anyway. Maybe are they used here? Sloth and torpor. Yeah, not so much. So it, it really is pointing to like the laziness of mind. And we talked about it a little bit when we talked about tiredness this morning. You know, there's the genuine tiredness, the sleepiness of a person who's had a, a long, hard week, and we get here and we sit still, and suddenly we're tired. Right? And that makes perfect sense. But then there's the mind that becomes sluggish. There's the mind that doesn't have the desire to practice the anymore. I was finding when I was sitting up here in that after lunch period, I was getting super floaty and it kind of felt good. And, you know, John Amro calls it the poor man's nirvana. Because you really start having this like floaty, nice. It's actually a nice feeling that I think a lot of people actually think meditation is about you know it's that it's that sort of checkout it's that spacey feeling but we're really actually quite dissociated we're we're quite disconnected um it definitely dulls our clarity and it doesn't allow us to see beyond it Now remember, I'm talking about these hindrances in terms of these are what block us from getting to that clear heart. These are what block us from being able to concentrate. Block us from clarity and stability. And then the next one is uh, called restlessness and worry. And this is the one that is, you know, my, my own private flavor. Every time I sit down, I want to jump out of my skin. Not so much anymore, but it's like that, I can't do this, I can't do this, five minutes, five minutes, I can't believe, I can't, I can't go any further. You know that moment of when we're sitting down and we just have to move. We've had enough. We can't do it anymore. It's usually mixed with anxiety and agitation. Worry is another word for it. And that would be in the body, the super fidgety body. We can't sit still anymore. And in the mind, it would just be that chaotic, ever-moving stream of thoughts that sometimes, I mean, when, I, when I'm in that state, I don't even know I'm in the state. And this is what's often happening in these hindered states of mind is we don't even know that we're in them. 
We're so caught, we're so trapped in them. It's like being a, a fish on a hook or a fish in a net. We're just trapped and flopping around and we can't get a breath of air because we don't even know that we're in it. So in naming them right now is the first step towards knowing that we're in it. Naming them and seeing them is the first step. Another one here, and one of the ones I find is particularly important in this, sort of listed in this restlessness and worry, is um, regret for what we've done in the past. Something that's really hard to move past. And so we'll sit in our practice and be thinking about and ruminating about maybe how we've harmed somebody or something that we wish we had done that we didn't. And I don't know about you, but regret is, regret's a really hard one for me. And what regret has done for me now in learning about it is when I'm in a moment that I think I might regret, I do the action just to cover my tracks. Just so that I don't have to regret it later. Regret having not done it. And I think the precepts is really kind of set up in a good way for this. Um, because the precepts are really a way that we, we went over last night. Was that just last night? Last night. Um, the precepts in this ethical practice are a really good sort of preemptive attack on regret. If we're not causing harm through our speech, if we're not causing harm through our sexuality or killing then our practices are much easier because we don't have to sit with this regret. And the, the last one and the final one is, is doubt. And this one is, all, uh, is often the one that takes us out of practice completely. It's the one that can make us wonder if this is even working, if this is even worth it. Should I even be here? Why didn't I go to the Bahamas instead? Why am I sitting still doing nothing but torturing myself for five days? You know, especially when we're people who are constantly in this quest for certainty, right? We want to know. I want to know. I want to know what's going to happen. I want somebody to tell me what's going to happen. I want the teachers certainly to tell me what's going to happen. And so we're, this doubt keeps us in this constant I don't know state. And that can lead to confusion and lack of clarity. And these are why these things are called the hindrances. And I know that I'm not even sitting the retreat in the same way that you guys are. Um, but I've had many of these arise today already. And one of the things I have to say that I'm grateful for is when I now see them arising, I don't have to identify with them anymore. We can so often take them personally. So when we're having an aversive moment, we suddenly become an aversive person. 
or when we're having a restless moment, we're a restless person, and we take on these labels and these identities. When if we really pay attention to them, we watch them throughout the day arise and pass. How many, how many of you have felt sleepy today in here? How many of you have felt restless today in here? How many of you have felt any kind of desire, hoping to have something that you couldn't get? How many of you have had aversion today, didn't like something that was happening? How many of you have had doubt today, weren't sure why you were here, wished you knew an answer to something? Okay, so for those of you in the front... I mean, I don't, maybe there's this, the non-participators. There was the few that didn't raise their hands. But pretty much everybody raised their hand. And there's this way that it's like, oh, I'm human. Oh, this is the human experience. And what this practice points out, which to me is a huge relief, is that this just happens, right? And when I let myself get caught up in it and believe it, and get pulled down by it, I don't get to get through to what's next, which is kind of the good stuff. You know, I miss out on what's on the other side. For me, I hate sitting up here talking in front of people. It's something that I abhor. And... Every time before I'm going to do it, I'm not quite sure why I am. But I keep doing it. And I'm really, really grateful that I do. Because if I let my aversion, which is my fear, run my life, I wouldn't get to do something that makes me deeply, deeply satisfied and happy. And I think we're so often controlled by and run by our fears and our anxieties and the way that we feel less than, not good enough. And it can really cause us a lot of suffering. It's a hard pattern to break. And like Noah was talking about earlier, what we're working on here is developing and creating new neural pathways so that we can be free from this this brand of suffering, which are these hindrances. And the first step is just to knowing that they're there. We have to be able to see them. And in seeing them, we can name them. And in naming them, we can disidentify from them. We can say, oh, aversion. Aversion's here. Oh, doubt. Doubt is visiting. In the, in the Buddhist mythology or stories, um, these hindrances are often referred to as Mara. And Mara came to visit the Buddha often when Mara was sitting under the Bodhi tree on his seventh day, right before enlightenment, or maybe right at enlightenment. Mara came and said, you can't, who do you think you are? You can't do this. I'll give you anything you want. I'll give you thousands of dancing girls. I'll give you all the gold and riches that you want. I'll make you happy forever through objects of your desire. And the Buddha said, no, you can't touch me, Mara. 
And Mara always, there's so many stories where Mara just stomps off, just totally aggravated because the Buddha didn't fall for it again. So the hindrances are the Mara. And it's so easy for us to say, oh, Mara, I see you. That's all you are. You're the, you're the trickster. You're the temptress. I see you. And one of the things that I've really learned to do with, with this type of energy is instead of... I mean, I think, there, I think there's two ways to go with it. One is, and one that I really like to use, is really to allow myself to sit with not the idea of what these hindrances are, but what the, the physical sensations of these hindrances are. So let's say, let's say something like fear is arising. Really finding, where does fear live in my body? Does it have a color? Does it have a texture? Is it warm? Is it cool? Like really digging into and investigating the sensation of fear. Because fear is always going to have a story. Fear is going to have a history. Fear is going to have something connected to our parents or a situation that happened, some kind of tragic, possibly, loss. And if we allow ourselves to bring it into this room with us right now and meet it where we are, if we can meet our lust right here, what does lust even feel like in our body? What do these sensations feel like when we don't need to act on them? How can we be? How can we sit with them? How can we know them? The first noble truth is to really know suffering, to understand it, to stand under it, to be with it. And to know that everything we do to try to get out of it is actually causing us more suffering. So what would it be like just to meet, to meet that doubt? Know what it looks like instead of running from it, instead of trying to escape from it. That's where the transformation happens, is when we stop running. And I know for me, that's when I actually started to trust myself. When I could sit with my loneliness without having to act upon it, when I could sit with my anger, when I could sit with my sadness without needing to do something to distract myself, when I could really sit here with it, oh man, all of the unskillful acts that I saved myself from. And I had this immense amount of, like I said, self-trust. I could trust that I was going to make wise and careful decisions because I knew how to be with this really difficult mind state, this really difficult emotion. And it was transformative. And also these Brahmaviharas that we're going to work through are also beautiful antidotes. Like I said, an antidote to aversion is compassion. An antidote, I don't even know what they are. I wish I did. Forgiveness. We could make it up. <laughs> I, know that when I'm, I know that when I'm feeling anxious... And really, because anxiety is a big one for me, and like I said, especially around speaking in front of people, 
When I send myself metta, when I just lay there saying the, those metta phrases over and over again, holding my heart, may I be filled with loving kindness. May I be at peace and at ease. It has this amazing transformative experience. My anxiety is gone because it's not about me anymore. I get out of the small mind and into the more expansive, more connected, less separated mind and heart space. So I just wanted to read (laughs) the poem that I forgot to bring. (laughs) Oh, well. I wanted to read you The Guest House, which is a roomy poem. And I don't have it, so I'll read it another time. But let's just sit for a few minutes. just sitting with the idea that all of these experiences will arise the experiences of desire and aversion of restlessness of tiredness of doubt how can we welcome them how can we see them clearly for what they are without getting caught without needing to blame ourselves or shame ourselves for being stuck now we have something to call them to name them Allowing ourselves to sit with them without fear. To meet them. May our hearts be filled with loving kindness. May our hearts be at peace and at ease. May we feel safe and protected from harm. May we be free.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.